0: Um, If you don't know me, my name is Joe. Um, I'm a a person that comes to this church, um, along with the rest of you. But yeah, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts this afternoon. And it's been very appropriately titled, I think, The Story of Us. And I think it's an appropriate title because the implication is that as we look at the story of the first church here, Within these pages, we as a church here today in Cass in 2017, we can trace our lineage and our roots back to this first church that we read about within these pages. Ash mentioned to us a little bit last week that if we traced the lineage of this church back to its roots at Pont- Pontifract Evangelical Church and so on and so forth back through the centuries, eventually you would find yourself here at this story that we've been reading about for the last few weeks. We believe that we are a continuation of what was started here in the book of Acts. So there's a couple of things that we want to learn from this narrative as a whole we go through as we go through. Firstly, we want to take lessons from this church. We want to learn about how it operated and what marked it out. And also, we want to learn how God wants his church to be. It's an important question, isn't it? God describes the church in Scripture as his bride. We are the bride of Christ. The church is incredibly important to God, so we want to know how he cares for it, how he inaugurated it, and how he wants us to behave as part of it. And I believe that in these first few weeks, and I think probably through the book of Acts as a whole, there's kind of two main themes that sort of underpin where we've been and where we're going. Now, what we've got to remember is that Luke... He writes the book of Acts primarily as a narrative, it's a story. We don't get an awful lot of elaboration from Luke as to what he thinks about the events that he's recording, other than the fact that we know he's writing to a guy called Theophilus because he wants him to be certain of the message of Christ that he has heard. Having said that, sometimes we get these subtle little repetitive hints that he gives us, these little checkpoints, if you like, little phrases that he repeats throughout this narrative to keep us in touch with his overall purpose for writing this book. And we find two of these little verses at the beginning of the end of chapter 6, which we had read for us earlier. Verse 1 says that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. That's how Luke wants to begin this section. And then he bookends it at the end by almost repeating himself and saying, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Now Luke repeats this type of phrase a lot and that's because he wants us to know that the first main theme of his writing is that the purpose of the church within these books, or within this book should I say, is for the gospel message to spread. Way back in chapter one Luke records arguably the last thing that Jesus says on earth. And comes in chapter one, verse eight, when he's talking to the disciples, and he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses to what exactly? What were they witness to? We know that they were witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. This is the message that they are charged with carrying forward. Luke is really keen for us to know as we go forward that the disciples are increasing and God's word is being accomplished. It is accomplishing what he has intended it to. And secondly, it's doing this through the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, the counselor that Christ promises disciples that he would send is present behind the scenes in just about every chapter that he records. Even here in chapter 6, When the seven men are chosen to serve, a prerequisite for their selection is that they are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And Luke records for us that from Pentecost onwards, the Holy Spirit of God is there the whole time, helping, guiding, facilitating the spread of this message. And as we go through, especially in this chapter, as the disciples have to make a tricky decision about the importance of preaching the word, we must bear in our minds that the preaching of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin is the ultimate goal of this church through the direct influence of the holy spirit and i don't really think it's a leap to say that this should be our ultimate aim as a church as well what starts out in jerusalem ends up by the end of acts somewhere in spain um, it's all over asia minor it's spread into europe and we know that today the gospel spread all over the world this was just the beginning And what we have before us is an account of some of the bumps and some of the scrapes along the road. But it is a message that we now know has spread all over the world, and we are part of that continuation here today. So a quick recap, just for a couple of seconds, where we've been so far. We're up to chapter 6. So last week, Ash spoke to us a little bit about how this message was unstoppable, despite the persecution and difficulty that it faced. And Boyd, the week before, talked to us a little bit how The church is a community of people knit together by this message and towards the beginning as well Ash spoke to us a little bit as we've already mentioned about the Holy Spirit shaping and guiding the actions of the church in its infancy. So uh, yeah, basically he's giving me the short straw because this week they all start falling out. (laughs) I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not. I'll read it again, just the first few verses. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We turn this responsibility over over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So straight away we've got a big issue, haven't we? We learn straight off the bat that the church is trying to meet the material needs of the people as well as their spiritual needs, and in so doing, they run into a problem. And the problem they run into, it becomes apparent very quickly, is caused by a clash of cultures. So therefore, my the first point, number one, is we're hopefully going to find out that the message of the gospel transcends Culture. The message of the gospel transcends culture. I'll read verse 1 again. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So we know that the church is growing. That's great. That's fabulous. But unfortunately, the church still has a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that it's full of people. And although there's this, all this amazing stuff happening, it's still full of people and sinful people at that. And even the church at this stage could not escape its own human nature. And unfortunately, as, uh, as anyone that's been married for more than 30 seconds will tell you, it's, it's part of our makeup to fall out. The sinful people, I'm afraid. But I do believe that this dispute that we have here in verse 1 is really relevant for us today as 21st century Christians. I believe that today we live in an age of real diversity and tension among different groups of people, amongst different cultures. And if we learn one thing as human beings, it's that we like to band together with people similar to ourselves because we believe that we can achieve more. The whole basis of a movement like socialism, for instance, will tell us that if we all club together we can make a better existence for everyone within our little culture. But the problem is, when we club together with people with a similar makeup to ourselves, it can make us automatically distrustful of people without, outside of our cultural group. And we know from the scripture that as a church, we're required to cater to different groups of people, different cultures. So we need to know how to act when these types of issues arise. And what starts here in chapter 6 is arguably a kind of innocuous complaint about food. It gets blown up because these cultures have come to loggerheads and an incident occurs which perhaps could have been avoided. So we're introduced to these two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrew Jews. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of background. Just stay with me for a couple of seconds, try not to fall asleep. It won't take long. In the Old Testament, as we know, the Jewish people were taken into captivity firstly by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. Uh, you can read about that in books like Daniel and Jeremiah. And although they were eventually allowed back, a good number of the Jews never returned home to Israel. And these became known as Jews from the Diaspora, or the Dispersed Jews, as they're sometimes called. And they differed a little bit from your native Israelites that still resided in Israel. And these two separate cultures of Jews emerged as the Jews that returned home and the Jews that didn't began to take on slightly different cultural identity. For instance, the dispersed Jews began to speak Greek, as opposed to the native Aramaic that was spoken by the Israelites. Hence, the dispersed Jews became known as Hellenists or Greek Jews, as we see here. Now, I've, I've looked at four different commentaries on this in the last week, and it's absolutely thrashed my head, if I'm, be, if I'm being perfectly honest. My conclusion is inconclusive, I'll say that. <laughs> Um, but basically we're not 100% certain how deep this fallout between the Hellenists and the Hebrews runs but some commentators reckon that this is just the tip of the iceberg and it runs really deep and they're falling out over all types of stuff theological differences and all sorts and other people reckon that it's just an isolated incident where really the two groups weren't really that different and possibly the Hellenist widows were just left out by accident but essentially we're not sure but here's what we can say for sure we definitely know the two groups spoke different languages and, as a result, probably had different cultural approaches to different aspects of their lives. And either accidentally or on purpose, one group of the widows was getting left out of the food distribution. And this gets blown up when the Hellenists decide to complain. Right, that's that out of the way. So, what's the application for us then? What do we learn from this first verse? As I mentioned before. As a church, we're called to treat people of different cultures equally. Now, that might seem an obvious thing to say, but you'd be staggered at how wrong the church has gotten this down through the centuries. And right from the beginning of the Old Testament, where God lays out the Old Testament law, he tells us in Leviticus 19.34 that the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus following up on this principle in ministering to foreigners like Samaritans in the New Testament. But if we're not careful and if we neglect this principle, we can become guilty of trying to fit Jesus into our own little sort of cultural bubble instead of humbly submitting to what he's commanded us to do. Case in point, Say when the American election's on, right, and you turn on your TV, and how many times will you hear a news reporter say something along the lines of, the Republican Party, they always get the Christian vote. Right, okay. So essentially what you're saying there is that being Republican and being Christian are synonymous with each other. Is that really what the message of the Scripture is saying? That the message of the Gospel is so narrow that it can only accommodate one particular type of culture or one particular type of political opinion. Now we can't be sure that the Hellenist Jews and the Hebrew Jews had vastly different outlooks on life like this. But what we can be sure of, that it was vitally important that these two groups could be brought to coexist within the same church and under the same gospel message. So much so that the disciples, they have to call a special meeting just to sort out this dispute and restore unity, even at this early stage. And the same has to be said for us. So if you want to come to this church you love Jesus and you trust him for the salvation of your sins and you want to vote a certain way that's alright we're not going to stand up here and tell you how to vote if you want to come to this church and you claim benefits that's fine you're welcome here if you want to come to this church you earn 60 grand a year you live in a mansion you are welcome at this church to worship with us if you want to come to this church and you're black or white or any of the shades in between you are welcome at this church it might sound obvious, but it bears, it bears saying. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the message of the gospel shouldn't inform how you vote or how you spend your money. But we have to say that at its root, the gospel has to rise above these things because it is more important, because it concerns our eternal fate. In Galatians 3, chapter 28, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, which is a continuation and an extension of this church that we're reading about in Acts. The believers there are suffering a similar problem, a kind of cultural superiority, if you like. And Paul addressing members of the church in Galatia who have gone back to trying to prove themselves to God through works of the law. And part of that is they're thinking that because of the culture that they were born into, so they describe themselves in this section as children of Abraham, they think that this is going to give God a greater opinion of them. And it's, it's obviously made them judgmental over other Jews, of not necessarily of their background, because Paul has to say to them, in verse 26, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one. In Christ Jesus. Now, I've got a mate me. My mate's called James. Uh, some of you might have heard me say this before, but I met him a few years ago, and uh, he's, he's a little bit different from me. He wouldn't mind me saying this. He's a good-humoured bloke. Um, he likes to wear the kind of same sweater a lot. Um, he's into maths. Um, he's, a, he's a maths teacher. He's a maths And his idea of a good night out is probably in the shed at the bottom of his garden, messing with screws and bolts and various kinds of lubricants and stuff like that. Um, And we became really good friends. But the point of what I'm trying to say is, to look at us, look at me and look at him, you'd think they've got nothing in common, those two. Nothing at all. And the first time I met him was at the church I used to go to in York. And he kind of sidled up and sat next to me. And I kind of looked at him like, what what have you come as? (laughs) but over the next few years I I became a Christian and we became really good friends and it was primarily because we opened the Bible together and we prayed together and we learned about Jesus together now I'm not necessarily saying that you're going to identify with everybody in church I'm not going to pretend that churches are all happy nicey nicey places it's not all kumbaya all the time I'm not saying that we should all wear the same brand of beige sweater um, but what I am saying is that we can celebrate and we can accommodate difference but still have the same heart and the same mind and it's because of what Christ has done for us our cultures are unified in Christ if we trust in him and it's up to the apostles in Acts chapter 6 to remind these two different factions of this fact the gospel transcends culture point number two the gospel caters for the marginalized. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that amongst all this cultural turmoil, you forget about the poor old Hellenist widows that are still hungry. And it shouldn't get lost on us that the poor and the widows in this particular day and age, they were actually being catered for at all. You know, there's no welfare state at this time, no benefit systems, no NHS. They've got no social safety net to fall on whatsoever. And in all likelihood, these widows existed because Jewish men from the, the dispersion, the diaspora, they wanted to return to Jerusalem before they died so they could be buried near the temple. The snag was, the poor old wives would get left behind when they snuffed it. So an implication for us, as I mentioned before, is that it is part of our duty to look after people's material needs as part of the church. And we see examples from this, from Christ in the Gospels. He healed people, he provided people with food, provided them with wine and he spent time with people on the fringes of society marginalized people and he used people's material need as a platform to minister to their spiritual need and here the apostles they're carrying on this framework that he set for them and as we know caring for people in our community is a great way to share the gospel we we use this as a pattern in this church we encourage you to make friends and to form relationships with people outside the church and we try to f- provide events to invite people to and we try to be a church that is as ac- accessible as possible in terms of making people feel comfortable and welcome you know there's a reason why we put everything up on the screen you know so you don't have to bring anything with you and there's a reason why we set the chairs up in a certain way because we know that the gospel is an offense to some people the scripture tells us so if they're going to be offended we'd rather it be because of the gospel and not because of any hang-ups that the church has potentially created for, for itself down through the years. Therefore, not only do we accommodate different cultures within our church, but also people from outside of our cultural bubble that aren't necessarily going to walk through that door on a Sunday afternoon. Just humor me for a second, right? Just transport this little scenario that we have here into the 21st century. Imagine how it would go down. I'm not saying this is how it went down, but just, just stay with me for a second. So picture the food being distributed. So whoever's dishing out the food, they turn up on the morning to dish out the food. They set up the tables or whatever they're doing. They bring the the baskets of, I'm guessing it was something along the lines of bread and fish or something. I doubt they were dishing out Nando's. Um, And someone goes to open the doors. And before the bolt even gets taken off the door, they peek through the window. And there's there's 30 Hellenist widows just, just sitting there. You know, you can imagine the kind of stuff that would get said in this day and age. Are they back again? I'm sick of them. Every day, they come wanting more food. You know, all they do is leech of us. Why sh- haven't they got a job yet? That's one we like to use, isn't it? We see poor people. Why aren't you working? You know, I'm not serving them anymore. I've had enough of it. Now, we know it could have been an accident. But we know for certain as well that these were poor and needy people. And for some reason or another, they were getting left out. So when it comes to us, what does the gospel say to us about caring for people that are marginalized and that are different from us? I want to go to Romans 3, 23, which is a verse that most of you will have been taught in Sunday school as kids, one that we should know well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So apply that to this situation. What Paul's essentially saying here is that the gospel renders us all bankrupt before God spiritually. We have all sinned, we all fall short of his glory, and spiritually speaking, we have nothing to offer him. What he thinks of us will always be more important than how good we think we are, or how much money we've got in the bank, as we learned from that passage in Galatians earlier on. And then we look at the second part of the verse, we are justified freely by his grace. Guess what that means? It means you can't offer anything to God in return for salvation. He gave it to us for free. And not only that, but he provided for us the clothes that we wear, the jobs we go to, the money that we earn, the cars that we drive. So when we see someone that's worse off than ourselves, we know that really God looks at us the same way. And if he's given to us freely, then we should be motivated to give to them. Now you might possibly be thinking, you know, come on Joe, this is basic Christianity, we know this stuff, we, you know, we're past this, but I submit to you that after you walk out those doors tonight, and your normal life kind of sets in again, and the, the Sunday sort of buzz sort of fades, this doctrine can go out the window very easily, now, I'll give you an example, there's like a trend on TV at the moment, right, and it does my head in, it's kind of, Let's find the weirdest person in society that we possibly can and show their life for an hour so we can all point the finger and look at how weird they are. All right? So a good one that I saw was I think it's called Benefits Britain or something, or Benefits Street, or something like that. And the premise, if you haven't seen it, is basically this. All right, we're gonna find a 20-stone woman who smokes 40 fags a day, drinks 20 cans of special brew, right? And somehow she's found a loophole where she can get five grand's worth of benefits a month, right? And essentially what they're doing is an up-to-date version of putting her head in the stock so you can throw rotten vegetables at it, right? So you, it's designed for you to sit there and go, what an absolute scumbag she is. You know, I pay my taxes. I'm an upstanding member of society. Who does she think she is? That's my beer she's drinking. I paid for that. Guess what? Romans 3:23 tells you that you are no better than her, right? That's just the way it is. Now, I'm not here to comment on the morality of whether that's right or wrong, but we learn clearly from this text in Acts 6 that marginalized groups of people, people on the fringes of society, need to be cared for, and sometimes that might mean regardless of what you think of them. This is an eternal battle, an internal battle, should I say, that I face every day when I go to work. I don't want to bang on about myself, but I do think this has got some relevance to where we're going. If you don't know what I do, um, I help run a sheltered housing organisation for ex-offenders and for homeless people and people with substance misuse issues. And every day I see people who are just at the bottom rung of society. They cannot sink any lower. right? They have got nothing and they are in desperate need of help. Problem is the majority of them you could say deserve to be there. Through choices that they've made, through things they have done, they have landed themselves in that situation. And to top it all off, They're not always necessarily the nicest people to work with. So I'm faced with this issue, right? Am I going to put aside my moral misgivings to help this person, even though they might potentially annoy me quite a lot? And I'll be honest, I fail at this miserably at times. I really need God to teach me greater patience and greater forbearance. It's something that's really been on my heart recently. But my boss has a little phrase that he sometimes likes to remind me of when I'm finding things tough say to me, Joe, you are there to help, not because they deserve it, but because they need it. What better illustration of the gospel are you going to find than that? Did the Hellenists and the Hebrews receive the gospel because they deserved it? Did the Galatians receive the gospel because they deserved it? Did the widows receive food because they deserved it? No, they needed it desperately. And also they had material needs that they needed met as well, like we all do. So let's think about the marginalized people that we run into outside of our social circles and think how is the gospel going to cause me to act towards this person? The gospel caters to the marginalized. Thirdly, and finally, very briefly, the gospel message is threatened and deacons are appointed, verses 2 to 7. So, as I mentioned at the start, the purpose of the church is for the gospel message to spread we've already seen how it spread last week even in the face of persecution as Ash mentioned to us and in verse 7 Luke lets us know that it carries on spreading even though this argument and this dispute has occurred within the church however the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit have to make a drastic decision in verse 2 as the message needs to be preserved now the apostles they're still learning on the job a little bit at this point right this can't get lost on us. They're not academic people. They're not political men. They haven't got degrees in sociology, right? majority of them are fishers, fishermen or laborers, right? They're not necessarily born leaders. However, as a result of what the Holy Spirit has appointed them to do, they're kind of thrust into the limelight. like, you know, 3,000 of them get saved in one afternoon, and here they are, they've got all these people to deal with, and lo and behold, 20 minutes later, they all start falling out. But the apostles have a deep conviction that this is what God wants them to keep on doing. Problem is, this is possibly the only thing they can really do at this moment in time. This is all they're equipped for. And they landed with this conflict. So in verse 2 that they agree, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now it's important for us to clarify at this point. This, this verse might get taken the wrong way a little bit. But here's what they're not saying, right? They are not saying, we are too important to get on with looking after widows, right? Because we've got more important stuff going on. We need to get some dog's body type people that are going to deal with the boring stuff so we can get on with the important stuff, preaching the word. That's what they're not saying. But what they are saying is that the message being preached is the very reason that they're there. And if the word isn't preached, then what's the point in calling themselves a church? I said at the start the preaching of the gospel message is the primary purpose of the church and the disciples they know this. Jesus told them in verse 1 that they're going to be his witnesses and the devil is trying everything he can to distract them with infighting and dispute and they have the wherewithal to recognize this. So they appoint people equipped for the job and the Bible teaches us that different people have different gifts in different areas. What the disciples need in this situation is some people that are going to be more skilled in resolving this conflict than they are. Case in point, right? If there's a tropical storm tonight and my roof caves in, I'm probably not going to ring ash. No offence, mate. I'm more likely to ring Dan. (laughs) I'm not sure what he thinks about that, but that's probably, you know, the spirit appoints different gifts to different people. You see what I'm saying? You know? Think again of what I said before. The Holy Spirit is there behind the scenes, the whole time, guiding and directing. And as I said before in this passage, the primary reason these men got picked to sort out this dispute is because they are full of the Holy Spirit, as we learn in verse five. And if you looked briefly, uh, uh, there's a verse in Romans 12, verse seven, that we learn that the Spirit gives specific gifts. different people and one of those particular gifts is the gift of serving in practical ways which is something that these seven men have got here and people with the gift of serving are sometimes known as deacons in the church now this passage is often used as like a a kind of pretext when someone's like appointed to the diaconate right i don't know when you hear that word what springs to mind i think of the doddery old bloke that takes the collection in my mum and dad's church (laughs) but there's a couple of things i want to say about it Sometimes in the church, deacons, it's like an official office. Now, we don't have deacons in this church in that way. But in another way, we have loads of deacons. That I'll explain what I mean in a minute. There's a little section in 1 Timothy and in Titus which talks about qualifications for deacons um, in an official role within the church. I'm not going to get into that today, but I just want to kind of focus on the, the word in its sort of purest sense. And that is that the Greek word diakonos just means to serve so in that sense of the word we've got deacons all over this church you know there's been deacons sat over here this morning this afternoon leading us in worship and serving us in that way there's deacons in there right now teaching your kids about Jesus fulfilling part of your responsibility to bring up your children in the way of the Lord there's been deacons at the back stood there right now that have been giving you teas and coffees serving your refreshments, and there's deacons on the door over here that welcome you, make you feel welcome if you're visiting, make sure you know where you're going and what you're doing. There's deacons that turn up in the week and scrub the toilet and wash the sofa covers when my daughter decides to launch a dinner all over them. Sorry about that. <laughs> I pity the poor soul that had to do that. But the point is, we are a church that wants to be marked out as a serving people. Serving is a specific spiritual gift, yes, Sometimes it's an office held in the church, but all of us who call ourselves Christians are called to be servant hearted in some capacity or another. It might just be looking after someone that's hurting. Might be as simple as a text or a phone call to see if someone's alright. Might be offering to cook someone a meal. Might be helping someone to do the shopping, looking after the kids, whatever it might be. It's simple stuff in it. It's not rocket science, but it demonstrates a real understanding of this gospel message that we keep banging on about. So just as I finish, we have the example of the perfect deacon in Jesus Christ who served people till he was almost at the point of collapse and served us in the ultimate way by laying down his life for us. And so think of the journey that we've been on in this chapter. We've seen cultural division. We've seen poverty. And the disciples' way of finding an antidote to this is finding men who through the Spirit can serve people in practical ways. Through this, the gospel can also be spread. And if you serve someone with the conviction that Jesus has served us first and saved us, and if we know that we merit nothing before him... And as such, we are all equal before God. If we serve people because of this, the gospel will get communicated through us. Yes, we do it up here from behind a pulpit, but you guys do it as well. And it is important that we recognize that. It was the job of the apostles to spread the message through preaching and prayer, but it was also the job of these seven men to ensure the preservation of the gospel through spirit-led servanthood. And we know that they succeeded because of what verse seven tells us. The word of God continued to spread. And spreading the message through spirit-led servanthood is something that we can all participate in.